0: What a glorious time of worship we have had and what a joyous truth we are celebrating that we have come to worship the risen one, the living one, and he is the audience of our worship and we are here to give glory and honor and praise to him and the marvelous thing is when we give him glory, he gives us blessing and what a gracious reality that is. So my... Calvary Bible Church family and guests and friends that are here this morning, I just want to greet you again with those marvelous words, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. A glorious truth. If you are here for the first time, if you're a guest with us this morning, I want to welcome you to Calvary Bible Church and to our study of God's holy word. You don't have any reason to care what I say or think, but you have every reason to need and to care about what God says in his holy word. And so that's our goal this morning is just to simply open the word of God with you and to read it to you, to exhort you to believe it. If you don't have a Bible with you, I wanna encourage you to reach into the pew rack in front of you, and there's, there are little black pew Bibles there. And I wanna encourage you to grab one of those and open it up and follow along with us as we hear from the Lord through his inspired word. This morning, we're gonna be studying the Apostle Peter's sermon, which he preached on the day of Pentecost, and that sermon is found in Acts chapter 2, which is in the New Testament towards the end of the Bible, and it's on page 92 of your Pew Bible. So if you just kind of turn towards the back, towards the end, and find page 92, that will take you to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 22 through 36. So again, that's on page 92 of the Pew Bibles. Now, the Pew Bibles have a numeration that starts in the Old Testament, and then the numbers start over in the New Testament. So make sure you're in kind of the back half of the Bible and find page 92, and that will take you to Acts chapter 2. That's the big number, and then if you look at the little numbers, you'll see verse 22, and that is where we will start this morning. Well, as you're turning there, I want to ask you to consider a phrase which you may hear an unbelieving skeptic say or perhaps even has crossed your mind or perhaps even dominates your mind, and that is the phrase, it simply isn't possible. It simply isn't possible. If you were to ask an unbelieving skeptic why they're not a Christian, they may answer somewhat along the lines of, it simply isn't possible. And, then, if you ask them, well, what's not possible? They'll say things like, well, God creating everything out of nothing in six days is simply not possible. Satan taking the form of a talking snake simply isn't possible. God saving Noah and the animals in an ark simply isn't possible. Parting the Red Sea simply isn't possible. And most of all, a dead man. Rising from the dead, it simply isn't possible. Now, of course, there is some astounding inconsistency in such statements because the same people who mock the biblical account and say it simply isn't possible have no problem believing that something must have always existed and Then that something, for some unexplained reason, exploded and created everything. And on a piece of debris from that explosion, a bunch of stuff bumped into each other and came alive. And then a bunch of genetic accidents began helping instead of hurting these creatures, and so eventually microbes turned into men. Ancient deer turned into whales. You can look that one up on Google for yourself. And dinosaurs became chickens. People have no problem believing that. So as has often been said, both the believer and the unbeliever have faith. They have faith in something miraculous and in something they have not seen, something they Did not observe. As believers, we believe in the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Creator of all things. But the skeptics believe in what I call the atheistic Trinity eternal matter, omniscient chance, and omnipotent time. See, the world exists, we exist, you exist. And so everyone has a faith in who or what they believe created them and all of this world. We say the creator is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, omnipotent, almighty, all-knowing, all-wise. The unbeliever says... No, it's matter that is eternal. It is chance, which is omniscient and able to create complexity. And it is time, which is all-powerful because enough time can create all things. The Christian believes that Jesus rose from the dead. The skeptic believes that every living thing arose from things that were dead. The Christian believes in the resurrection. The unbeliever believes in spontaneous generation, life coming from non-life but both the believer and the unbeliever believe that something that was not alive came to life so the heart of our faith is the resurrection of the Messiah and the heart of their faith is the resurrection of a microbe but both believe that something which was not alive came to life everyone has faith Everyone has a faith commitment. Everyone places their faith in someone or something. So my question for you this morning is, where have you placed your faith? This is the central question of life. Who or what do you believe is your creator? And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because you think it simply isn't possible, I want you to... Listen carefully to what the apostle Peter who is an eyewitness of the resurrection says in Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 36. Read along with me in Acts chapter two beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. He begins with an appeal to listen and that's my appeal to you this morning. Listen, really listen. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But... God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your holy one to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now to those who say, I, I can't believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead because it simply isn't possible, Peter says in verse 24 that the truth is actually exactly the opposite. He says in verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its Power. It simply wasn't possible, Peter says, for Jesus to be held in the power of death. You see, my dear friends, when the doubter or the skeptic says, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because it simply isn't possible. The man who saw the resurrected Christ with his own eyes responds, saying, Then you don't understand who Jesus actually is. Because if you understood who he really is, you would understand that what is truly impossible is for the Lord of life, the creator of all things, to be held in the power of death. That's what's impossible. If you think the resurrection simply isn't possible, it's because you think Jesus was a mere mortal man and nothing else. But he was not just a man, he was God incarnate. He was fully God and fully man, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the creator who entered his creation. And what is impossible for mortal men is absolutely possible for the Son of God. So when you understand who Jesus really is, the lights will go off. The lights will turn on, and everything else will fall into place. And all of a sudden, you'll realize, wait a minute. This omnipotent, omniscient creator who spoke the worlds into existence by his word, of course he could part the Red Sea. Of course he could rise from the dead. Of course he can be seated at the right hand of the throne on high, and of course he's coming again. When you understand who Jesus really is, you'll understand that what is impossible is for death to hold him in its power. The Lord is gonna show us that as we go through the sermon of the Apostle Peter. And the sermon is going to build to the great and glorious conclusion in verse 36 when Peter concludes by saying, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Who is Jesus? He is both Lord and Christ. The Lord, the ruler of all things, and Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, who came to give his life to save us from our sins. See, once you know for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, you will realize that it isn't the resurrection which simply isn't possible. What simply isn't possible is for the Lord of life to be held in the power of death. That is what's impossible. So I want to walk through the passage and kind of to guide our journey, I'm going to walk you through a few main words. We're going to talk about the premise, the plan, the power, the prophecy, the proof, the promise, the purpose, and then the persuasion of sinners. So let's begin with the premise. The premise of Peter's message is that you know You already know that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's not just an ordinary man. He says in verse 22, Man of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. He's saying you know that Jesus is no ordinary man. You yourselves know this because you saw his miracles. You saw the signs which point to the true identity of Jesus. And you know, he says, that through these signs and wonders and miracles, something incredible was occurring. God the Father was testifying to the identity of Christ the Son. He was, as Peter says, attesting to the identity, the true identity of Jesus Christ. God is the first witness brought in this case. Imagine it like a court case where they're trying to decide, did, is Jesus really the son of God or not? Did he truly rise from the dead or not? And the first witness to take the stand is God himself. Jesus the Nazarene, Peter says, a man attested to you by God. God attested to the true identity of Christ. And he did so through the signs and miracles that Christ performed in their midst, in the presence of hundreds, thousands of eyewitnesses over the course of three years. You know, in our judicial system, we typically weigh the... Evidence by two things, by the credibility of the witness and then by the strength of the evidence that they provide. And the reliability of a witness can be undermined if it can be shown that they weren't present when the event happened or they didn't know key information or they had ulterior motives or they had a pattern of lying. Those are the things that can undermine the credibility of a witness. But while those things are occasionally true of fallen men, none of them are true of God. So who can be a more reliable witness than the omnipresent, all-knowing, righteous God of truth who Hebrews 6.18 says cannot lie? God attested to this, and he does not lie. And he knows all things, and he is omnipresent, present everywhere, and so he is the most reliable witness that there can be, and he has attested to this. Well, what about the strength of the evidence? So we've talked about the reliability of the witness who is God himself. What about the strength of the evidence? Well, What more powerful evidence can you get that Jesus is the son of God than him healing the sick, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead and all of the other miracles that he did in the presence of thousands of people? Evidence so strong that even his, his enemies said we can't deny the miracles that he's doing. So we have to tell the people that he's doing these miracles by the power of Satan rather than God. Peter's premise is that the evidence which God has provided is so compelling that only one conclusion is possible and that's the conclusion of verse 36 therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's look now at the power or the plan. We've looked at the premise and now looked at the plan. Peter says that Christ going to the cross, dying and rising from the dead, was God's gracious plan to save sinners. Look at verse 23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. I think in this verse, Peter is countering an objection. He's countering the objection that had to be in the people's minds ever since Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. How can Jesus, if he is God in the flesh, if he is the Son of God, the one who came down from heaven, the creator of the whole world, the omnipotent, all-powerful one, how could he be arrested and bound and beaten and tried and crucified by mere mortals? How can the creation execute the creator? Isn't the fact that he died proof that he wasn't divine? This, by the way, was the mocking point his enemies were making while he was hanging on the cross... In Matthew 27, verse 39, it says, "Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, "You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, "He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. So let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God? let god rescue him now if he delights in him for he said i am the son of god and it says others were hurling these same insults at him this was one of the main objections that the people had to the christian message that jesus is the son of god and so peter addresses it in verse 23 and he tells them that jesus was not overpowered by his enemies Rather, he was handed over or delivered over to them according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. How did Peter know this? Because Jesus had told him this very thing before any of it happened. Jesus had told his disciples, "I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified there." And Peter said, "No, Lord, it, we're never going to let that happen to you." And and Jesus told Peter, Peter, step aside. He explains to him that this is God's plan. It must be this way. And then he tells Peter, Look, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. The scripture says that the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's why it happened, because Jesus willingly laid down his life to save sinners like you and like me from our sin. He was not overpowered. He laid his life down. In fact, on the cross, he surrendered his spirit, saying, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He willingly died for us Satan thought he was defeating the son of God the Sanhedrin thought they were getting rid of the competition and the Romans thought they were eliminating a geopolitical threat but in reality they were all unwittingly fulfilling the predetermined plan of God to save his people from their sin what evil thought was a victory was actually the ultimate defeat Christ has conquered and prevailed. Next, let's look at the power, the power. Peter says, it was impossible for death to hold him. Look at verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is the heart of Peter's argument and the issue which every single person must make a definitive response to. You have to respond to this. You will respond to this one way or the other, either with belief or unbelief, and there is no middle ground. This is a line in the sand, and every soul, every person, every individual, every single one of you and me will be on one side of the line or the other. Everyone must choose which side of the line they are on. Do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or do you not? There is no halfway position here. Either Jesus is who he said he is and it was impossible for death to hold him or he is not who he said he is and... Death did hold him. Either he is resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand of God and coming again to establish his kingdom or he is not. There is no middle ground. Do you know what the most intellectually unsustainable position is? It's actually the position of the cultural Christian. The one who doesn't want to reject the Christian gospel, but also doesn't want it to dominate their life. My friends, if Jesus Christ suffered and died for your sins and rose from the dead to break the power of your sins so that you could have eternal life, that is a truth which demands total life transformation and consecration. You cannot trifle with this truth. You cannot be half in this truth. You are all in or you are all out. So let me ask you a question. And this is a question of the heart. When you hear the phrase, it simply isn't possible. When that phrase, it, it simply is not possible, how does your heart finish the sentence? Does your heart finish the sentence by saying, it simply is not possible that a man could rise from the dead? Or does your heart finish the sentence this way, it is simply not possible for the Lord of glory to be held in the power of death? What does your heart say? What does your heart think is impossible? Does your heart think it's impossible to believe that Jesus rose from the dead or does your heart believe that it's impossible to think that the son of God could be conquered by death? How your heart answers that question reveals who you really think Jesus is. If he is, as verse 39 says, both Lord and Christ then it is impossible for him to be held in the power of death. In fact, Romans 1.4 says that Christ was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So the question is, do you believe this? And this is the line which divides the believer from the unbeliever and is the determiner of your eternal destiny in heaven or in hell. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, this is the truth that saves this is what you must believe in order to be saved, that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day to give you eternal life. Do you believe this? Well, we have looked at the power of the resurrection. Now let's look at the prophecy. This The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was revealed by God long ago. Look at verses 25 through 31. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter points out that the resurrection of Jesus Christ had been prophesied by David one thousand years before it happened. A thousand years before it happened, and this is just one of the many prophecies about the life of Christ: how he would be born, where he would be born, a tragedy that would happen at the same time he was born, with the slaughter of the infants prophecies about his life, prophecies about what his enemies would do, prophecies about what his enemies would say, prophecies about how they would kill him, how they would pierce his hands and his feet, and prophecies about his resurrection. There are so many prophecies about Jesus which we can prove were written centuries before his birth that any honest inquirer will come to the same conclusion as the investigative journalist Lee Strobel did when he looked into this. He was an atheist, but he decided, look, you know what, I'm an investigative journalist. I don't believe in God. I'm gonna at least look into this so that I can prove for myself that this is all a bunch of myth. And he began to look at the evidence and he arrived at the same conclusion as every honest inquirer, that there is a mountain of evidence for the historicity and the veracity of the gospel. In fact, Jesus said, if you search for me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. The reason people don't find Jesus is because they don't want to be found. Because they want to live their life as if there is not a day of judgment coming. As if they're not gonna have to give an account to God for how they have lived they don't want to consider that and so as romans 1:18 says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness they push it out of their minds they gather from here and there different things that help them to justify or argue or explain away their position and they live in sin my friends it simply is not possible if you want to ask the question It isn't possible. What is not possible? I'll tell you what's not possible. It is not possible for Jesus to fulfill so many specific prophecies written so long before his birth unless he truly is the Son of God and unless this truly is the inspired word of God. So if you're a doubter or skeptic, my question for you this morning is, are you an honest skeptic? Are you willing to truly look into the claims of Christ and the powerful evidence provided by the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? Well, that brings us next to the proof in verse 32. Peter writes, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. This is the third type of evidence that Peter has presented. He begins by saying, God himself testifies. God himself is a witness to this. And God testified through the signs, wonders, and miracles that Jesus did. That's the first strain of evidence. The second strain of evidence was the fulfilled prophecy. Now comes the third strain of evidence, which is the eyewitnesses. And Peter is preaching to the crowd, and standing there with him are the other apostles and the others who had seen the risen Lord with their own eyes, touched him with their own hands Thomas had put his finger into the nail prints and Peter is saying we are all witnesses of this truth I want you to hear the written testimony of Peter from his second letter Second Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through 19 listen to what he says he says for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. By the way, I want you to think about how Peter starts out. He says he says we did not follow cleverly devised tales One of the beautiful things about Inspired Scripture is God knows the human heart. He knows the questions and the doubts that go through people's minds when they're hearing these things. And one of the things that's probably going through someone's mind right now is, wait a minute, yes, okay, I understand that the Scripture records all these eyewitnesses, but I just think it's all a bunch of cleverly devised tales. Just rumors, just stories passed down. God knew that would be in your heart. He knew you would struggle with that doubt, and he writes for you a testimony from an eyewitness who says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he explains, for when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Twice, once at Christ's baptism and then on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father spoke audibly from heaven and said, this is my son. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. And Peter says in verse 18, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And he says, so we have the prophetic word, all of those prophecies, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He's saying, look, we have the fulfilled prophecy, but... I was there, Peter says, I saw it, I heard it, I, I observed it, I'm testifying to you as a trustworthy ey- eyewitness, and I'm saying, pay attention to this, it's a lamp shining in a dark place, you're lost, you're confused, you don't know how to understand this life, or what this life is for, or where this life is going, pay attention to my testimony, it's a lamp shining in the darkness to guide you out of the pit you're in, and into the glorious dawn of eternal life in Christ. Listen, pay attention. That's his appeal to you. Listen to the Apostle John's testimony in his first letter, 1 John chapter one, verse one. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The testimony of John. Now listen to the testimony of the Apostle Paul. First Corinthians fifteen. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Paul. and the gospels and the epistles, contain numerous other eyewitness accounts and the majority of those eyewitnesses gave their lives, suffered brutal, torturous deaths. They lived hard lives, lives of persecution and brutality and poverty and they lived and died for this truth, sealing their testimony with their blood. So you have a choice to make. You can write them all off as liars and lunatics. But you cannot ignore their testimony. You can reject it and completely reject it or you can believe it. But there is no middle ground between those two. And you have to deal with the fact that many eyewitnesses testified to the resurrection. By the way, it is not just... The eyewitness is recorded in Scripture that you need to consider. Because right now in this very room, there are hundreds of people who claim that their lives have been changed by the living Christ and that they know him and walk with him and follow him. So you can't just set this question aside. It's too important for that. You can, you can reject Peter and Paul and John, they're liars, they're lunatics. You can look to your left and to your right and say, liars and lunatics, all y'all. And then you can go home and tell yourself what a loving and kind person you are while you mock the testimony of those who saw the Lord and of those whose lives have been transformed for him. But what you cannot do is pretend as if that testimony doesn't exist. You have to deal with it. So, my prayer is that you will love the truth enough to dig into this and to answer the question which Jesus once asked Peter. He said, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? You can answer that a myth. Just a good moral teacher. Well, A good moral teacher doesn't claim to be the son of God. Doesn't get all of his followers murdered for a lie. So you gotta let that one set aside. You're basically left, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, with saying he's either Lord or he's a liar and a lunatic. That is your choices. What choice will you make? When Jesus says, who do you say that I am, my prayer is that you'll answer the way Peter did when the Lord asked him that question, Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, let's look now at the promise in verse 33. In verse 33, Peter talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. You see, when Peter is preaching this sermon, there are people from all over the world there. And they all speak different languages. And as Peter is preaching, they're all hearing him simultaneously in their own languages. And that has only a miraculous explanation. And so Peter is saying, look... The promise of the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and you are seeing it and you are hearing it right now. Because all the people are looking around, they're like, they like you know, traveled to Jerusalem with all these people, and they're like, well, well, wait a minute. I know you speak this language, and I know you speak this one. I'm hearing him in my language. No, I'm hearing him in my language. No, no, he's speaking my language. No, he's speaking my language. Peter says. Christ, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father and receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear right now. The promise of the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus had told the disciples, he said, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to indwell the hearts of believers, to empower them for service. And Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is what is happening right now. We are being witnesses for Christ to the ends of the earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the fulfillment of the promise. Next, look at the purpose. What is the purpose of it all? And Peter answers, the purpose is that Jesus will reign in exalted glory forever. Look at verses 34 through 35. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for Your feet. Here, Peter is quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, and Psalm 110, verse 2 talks about the Messiah reigning from Zion, reigning and ruling over all of the nations in a kingdom which never ends. And by the way, notice that. This verse quoted here is a powerful Trinitarian statement. The Lord, and here in the Old Testament, the sacred name of God, Yahweh, appears, says to my Lord, the term Adonai, so Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son after the Holy Spirit had been poured out. You have all three members of the Trinity here in these verses. And what the Father says to the Son is that after his resurrection and ascension, there will be a period of time until God's enemies will be crushed and the messianic kingdom will be established. And by the way, that is the period of time we're in right now. Christ, who was crucified, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is exalted and seated at the right hand of God the Father, and there is a time until God's enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, until they will be crushed and defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And in the meantime, the scripture says, God is being patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And so, the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day when you're hearing the good news that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again to break the power of sin and death. And if you will repent of your sin and place your faith in him you will be united with him his righteousness will be yours your sin will be credited and paid for by him, credited to him and paid for completely and you will have everlasting life and become a co-heir of the eternal kingdom which belongs to him this is glorious and marvelous and the purpose of it all is for Jesus to rule and reign forever in a kingdom of righteousness and peace My question for you is, will you be there? Will you be there? Are you ready for the return of the king? Is your citizenship in heaven? Have you passed from death to life, from condemnation to full and free forgiveness by the grace of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Well, we end then with the persuasion. As Peter attempts to persuade sinners, And basically, his final message is this. You know the truth, so receive it and believe it. He says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Know for certain. He is both Lord and Christ. He's Lord, the one that you must love, obey, and serve. And He is Christ, the promised Messiah who alone can save you from your sins. He is Lord and He is Christ. Do you know that for certain? If not, today could be the day. Today could be the, t- the day you're transformed by the grace of God. Today could be the day you repent. Of thinking. It's simply not possible that Jesus could have risen from the dead. And when you finally confess by faith that what's not possible is for death to hold in its power the Lord of glory. Today could be the day you hear, Christ is risen, and respond for the first time in full sincerity of faith, He is risen indeed. Lord, I pray. That every heart will respond to the good news that he is risen with the testimony of faith. Yes, he is risen indeed. Lord, you are the son of God. You are Lord and you are Christ. And so Lord, our only hope for salvation is in you. And I pray that anyone who does not know you, who doesn't know for sure that if they were to die today that they would go to heaven, I pray that today would be the day in which they would believe that you died for their sins, that you were buried and that you rose again bodily from the dead, conquering death, conquering the penalty of sin, that you ascended to heaven, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father and that you are coming again to judge the living and the dead. Lord, may this gospel be believed and received by every heart. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If today was the day in which you says, I do believe, I wanna ask you to come and tell someone that you believe. Come and tell me, find one of our elders who are wearing the name badges, the gold name badges, or our deacons, and tell them, I believe. And then ask them a question about what you should do next. You know, the people who Peter was preaching with received the good news. They believed they were saved. And then Peter told them the next thing they should do is to be baptized as a public testimony of their faith. And then they should be added to the gathering of the saints in the local church. So you should believe and be saved, then be baptized as a testimony of faith, and then be united with a local church. That's kind of the path in front of you if the Lord has Rescued you by grace today. That's my prayer for you. May God bless you. I'd invite you to.